Hello and welcome to this episode of The Future Buzz, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Harriet Johnston and I'm hosting a series of FutureVerse podcasts in which we dig into topics that are closely related to Ytree's central purpose. That is, to build a world where wealth is defined by how we live, not what we own. In order to do that, we're transforming personal finance by giving transparency, efficiency and meaning back to money. At the moment in the FutureVerse, we're thinking about success, what it means, how we can achieve it and how we can support others along the way. I'm joined today by two trailblazing women who have not only been remarkably successful in their own right, but have devoted much of their time, energy and financial resources to backing other women. Sharmadine Reed is the founder of War Nails, Beauty Stack and The Stack World, a platform that enables women to build the knowledge and networks to grow their careers. Debbie Wasco has founded four successful businesses, one of which, Love Home Swap, the world's largest online home exchange platform, was sold for $53 million to Wyndham Destination Networks in 2017. Now, this is going to be a conversation in three parts. Firstly, we'll explore Sharmadine and Debbie's journeys and look at how this applies to the broader picture of female entrepreneurs and working mothers. Next, we'll cover what we're doing and what more needs to be done to better support female entrepreneurs in order to create a supportive ecosystem of female founders and to ensure combining work and motherhood, if that is what a woman wants to do, is as seamless as possible. Finally, we'll cover what the entrepreneurial community as a whole can do to ensure more women like Debbie and Sharmadine receive the financial backing and to energise the investment community to recognise female founders as the financial opportunity that they so clearly are. Because the data is clear, investing in female founders is simply good business. Debbie, Sharmadine, welcome to the podcast. Debbie, I'm coming to you first. You're a multi-exit entrepreneur and a mother of two. Tell our listeners a little bit about your journey so far. I think to begin at the beginning, I've had a 25-year arc of entrepreneurship. I'm a few months off 50 and I founded my first business when I was 25. And I think that I can group my career very much into before and after having children. I think that starting a business at 25 is a brilliant time to start. Not that I knew that at the time, because your life is completely de-risked. And I would say to anyone who's listening and who's in their 20s wondering about whether to embark upon an entrepreneurial journey, one of my life mantras that's always got me into trouble is what's the worst that can happen? And I think the answer when you're young is not very much. I think that the challenge for me, if I move on through my business life to Love Home Salt, which you referenced in your introduction, which is probably the, one of the businesses I'm best known for. And I launched that as a single mum. I had one child who was two and one child who was zero. And that was absolutely not my life plan in any way. And I think there are some big lessons in that. The first, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is that structurally, entrepreneurship is stacked against women. That when I founded my business in my 30s, and the mean age to found a business in the UK is 32, that's often when women are having children. And for all of the years of Love Home Swap, I, it cost me to work. My childcare costs were greater than any money that I made in the business. And entrepreneurship is a hits business anyway, right? We're used to taking big swings, and it was a flipping big swing to think that I would be able to do what thankfully I did pull off, which was to have a big exit that made the rest of my life financially secure for me and my family. So there are some big issues to talk about, I think. We're double tax on our childcare. 
which I think is really frustrating. And I think that there are some structural things that we need to solve to get more women founding businesses. And let's be clear, the pandemic has been terrible for women's careers. Post the pandemic in the UK, 2.17% of capital went to back a female founder. It's now down at a percent. And I think one of those big issues is around the challenge that it's a risk. I think we've got to really think about the world of work for women and the world of risk for women and recognize that there isn't a magic bullet to solve the problem. But unless we start thinking about what it's like to start a business with young children, we're not going to change the conversation. Thank you, Debbie. And Sharmadine, what about you? Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you've navigated business and motherhood on your own terms so successfully? So for me, much like many women who start business, I had a business and a baby at the same time. So I had two babies. I was 24 when I started Wild Nails and then I got pregnant at 25, gave birth at 26. So I haven't really known any different. And because I never really set out to be an entrepreneur in that way, I was kind of juggling my creative career with my startup of my now salon with what it was like to be not only a young mum, but also a mother without a support network because all of my other friends at the time were not starting businesses. They were just jumping into their first rung of their career ladder and they were still going out partying and raving. And I remember feeling incredibly lonely at that time, actually, because it seemed like I was a decade early for what my friends are doing now, which was quite difficult, actually. But where it was emotionally difficult, I was very, very practical and logistical about how I compartmentalized and managed my life. So what that looked like for me is that my son just came everywhere with me. I took him to every meeting. I took him on business trips. He he basically grew up in whatever salon or office or like conference I'm attending. And it was really funny because when he started playing Minecraft, I remember he recreated my now salon in Minecraft and I was actually quite proud. But when I look back, it was really tough. And while I enjoyed it at the time, I kind of look back at the days lost and the hours lost and the running between, you know, running from childcare, as Debbie said, like just, I felt like I was constantly running around trying to make everything work. So I'm in a very reflective mood over that period right now, which is able to help me understand what are the policies and the workplace cultures that can be created in order to make it easier for women to not have to choose or not have to feel stretched between three or four different areas of their life. It's amazing to hear about both of your individual journeys, a real reminder that no one path is the same. One thing that all women, especially working mothers, do have in common is the way they interact with the government policies designed to support them. Sharmadine, what kind of policies would you like to see to ensure working mothers and female entrepreneurs are better supported and empowered? Yeah, so one of the first things that we did when I launched the Stack World, which is my platform for women around business, culture and politics, is we commissioned a podcast, an article, documentary series, all about the first three years, because that's when I felt really, really things were hard for me because there was no subsidised government childcare. 
for us, we wanted to ask the question, what would it look like if actually childcare was subsidized? So for those who are listening in the UK, mothers get 15 hours free childcare a week when the child is three years old and they get 30 when they're four years old. And then when they're five years old, they get to go to school for free, which is amazing. But we were like, what would that look like if it actually started at one years old? So that for the first year of life whoever is the main caregiver is not jumping off the ladder finding it really difficult to return and then losing three years of their digital skills interpersonal skills their relationship skills whatever it is because like debbie said it actually costs them to work if they choose to work in those first three years it actually costs you more than what you earn so yeah the the number one policy which is now was in this budget is that childcare should be subsidised from age one. It's startling really, isn't it, that women with young children are often paying to work just to keep their careers ticking along. Debbie, do you have anything to add on that? Particularly, is there anything policymakers could be doing to support slightly older women? Because of course, childbirth isn't the only point of inflection in a woman's life. Well, I wholeheartedly agree with Sean. I think her recommendations make perfect sense. I suppose my lens currently as I enter a slightly different stage of life, is on the brain drain that happens when women hit perimenopause and menopause. So I recently become the lead investor in a business called The Better Menopause, and that's a community and product platform for women over 40, between the ages of 40 and 60. And the stuff for me that was a kind of light bulb moment for that was that 25% of women over the age of 50 leave the workforce because they can't handle their perimenopause, menopause symptoms. Only 50% of women seek medical help and 13 million women in the UK are in perimenopause, menopause at any one time. To me, that's the next thing that I can helpfully think about and use my voice to lobby government and decision makers around because that is huge so if we can survive everything that we've talked about and everything that Sarah and I and so many others have been through which is the stuff that actually makes me thankful that I have no short-term memory like I can't really remember how awful it was when my kids were tiny similar there's sort of vignettes like turning up to fresh fields with two children under two trying to you know like slightly mad things that you do that I can't particularly remember for me there's a belt and braces job to be done. What do we do exactly as Shah outlined in years one to five? But, but to me, what was horrifying was if you make it that far and you hit 50 and you think that you are losing your mind or you're depressed or physically you feel like shit, that a lot of that is to do with medically undefined symptoms that can be solved. And I think that employers entrepreneurs, government have got a real responsibility to understand that and to make sure that women stay in work because otherwise the impact on UK PLC of having another brain drain after 50 is just massive. It's great to hear about the work both of you are doing, lobbying both government and employers. It's really the definition of paying it forward. But I'm interested, you've both run businesses yourselves. Were there any workplace policies you implemented in your teams that you found to be particularly effective in creating more inclusive work environments? So I had a quite unusual situation whereby the only people in my company that have had babies over the last few years have all been the male caregivers, the male parents, which gave me a really, really amazing opportunity to rethink that what parental leave looks like and how 
we expect the woman, the female, to automatically look after the, the child. So that meant discussions within my company whereby we said, for every time that our male engineers are in the office, you've got to remember that their partner is home alone. And what does that, you know, what is that impact? So first and foremost, remembering that my company is very small, very startup, I can afford to be flexible. So I want to say what I'm saying with that caveat that I have chosen to design a workplace, knowing that I've got a, a lot more flexibility than other people might do. In terms of having parental leave chunked up throughout the first year of the baby's life. And I guess the challenge and the, the challenge for listeners is how do we balance that empathetic, supportive, flexible working with also making sure that businesses are being run efficiently and with productivity? It's, it's a tough one, both as, a, as an employer, but also someone who is very, very close to my employees and trying to think about how I can best support them. Some of the research that we did with our younger Stackworld members is that not showing up to work is very hurtful if you are in the early stages of your career. So if you graduated in, you know, 2020 and you've effectively lost three years of office, interpersonal, social skills, relationship building, networking, internal community building, all of that stuff, and then you're, you know, 25, 26, getting towards your late 20s, but you haven't built that really, really critical early peer group in your in your career, that can be damaging for the future gender leadership gap. We think like when actually are women dropping out of that leadership and, you know, McKinsey calls it the broken rung. It's your first managerial position. Whether you get that first managerial position or not really determines the, the trajectory of your career going, going forward. Again, don't want to make generalizations because there's always going to be superstar, rock star anomalies. But from the research, it's that broken rung. What we have encouraged our community to do is to really work on building that internal network in the organization. So yes, it includes showing up to meetings, but it's also showing up to the spaces between the meetings and having conversations between the meetings to make sure that you're, you're heard there. So I think the hybrid working or working from home is quite dependent on the stage of your career, what your aims and ambitions for your career path are, and the type of work you're doing. Thank you, Sharmadine. It's great to hear about the importance and power of network and community building for women. And I want to bring us back now to one of the communities that you're both a part of, female entrepreneurs. But we need more of you. Debbie, you pointed out earlier that the percentage of UK capital backing female founders has actually decreased since the pandemic. Why is it now more important than ever to be backing female founders? As a female entrepreneur and a multi-exit female entrepreneur, um, there are hardly any of us. Women don't get backed and women don't invest capital, and yet women deliver 35% better returns than men. Backing women, entrepreneurs, makes good financial sense, and we don't do it. And women don't write checks. We need to change that. And, and in my lifetime as an entrepreneur, which I'm afraid is now 25 years, it's got worse, not better. So if we don't have a gender-focused conversation around that, we are not helping ourselves. And other countries do it way better than the UK. And one of the consequences of Brexit, again, speaking very financially, is that we've lost access to the EIF, which is 
a central pot of money that funds venture capital funds. And the EIF has a gender quota in it in a way that no money in the UK does. So again, you know, Sharmadine and I are, are both fortunate, although we've worked hard for it, to have voices where if we talk about something enough, someone might listen. I am so struck by that stat, Debbie. I'm going to repeat it. Women deliver 35% better returns than men. This is a clear opportunity for the investment community. Sharmadine, do you have anything to add here? How can we energise the investors to recognise female entrepreneurs as the financial opportunity that they clearly are and to back them? Yeah, I agree. You know, it's a pipe, It's creating the pipeline of people who are going to have enough money to raise. So I, I really focus my work on that, like mid-20s up to, let's say, you know, 40. I'm 39 now, so I'm very much like serving myself. It's like, how do you give them the confidence the skills, the tactics to be able to have that economic power, to be able to make decisions. And I'm really preoccupied with this gender leadership gap. I'm just like, things aren't changing. I think also women need to talk about money and women need to unapologetically get rich and deploy their capital in backing other women. Otherwise, we don't create an ecosystem. And if there's a gender pay gap, which we talk about all the time, the thing we talk about less is the gender savings gap, which is worse. So women aren't making money in their lifetime. If they're earning 72% of what a man earns, they're not saving, which means that they don't have optionality and they can't invest. And so structurally, this ecosystem is not emerging. The gender savings gap is one of the things that holds us back. So Sharmini is totally right. And I think her and I can be a, you know, a big crack force for a new political party that will found off the back of this call where she, she can say women up to 40 and I'll take them after that. Because I think it, it really matters. It matters how we work, what we earn, how we save, how we stay and work. And those, I think, are conversations that it's important for women to have whilst recognizing that there isn't a homogenous woman, you know, nor is there a homogenous female entrepreneur. Different shapes, sizes, backgrounds, introverts, extroverts. You mentioned the gender savings gap there, and that is so integral to what we're focused on at Ytree. Because by 2025, the majority of the UK's wealth is going to be female, which is almost as amazing a statistic as your one about female founders generating 35% more returns than men. The wealth management industry has historically been pretty poor at managing female wealth. And a lot of our work is about trying to encourage the right conversations in families and at work around women's financial futures. We've actually got another podcast where we covered the importance of talking about money with Otago Wagba, where we discuss this in more detail. So I'd love to refer our listeners to that. We're coming to the end. This has been a brilliant conversation full of excellent advice for working women. I have one final question for you both. What is the superpower that women have and should cultivate in order to be those better founders and leaders that we've explored in this podcast? I think it's about harnessing the power of reinvention you just got to have the confidence to do it and we've got to recognize that it's a series of different chapters and there's no shame in that there's no fear around that we need to be bold and brave and that's to do with network and community and upskilling and no magic bullet but harnessing the power of reinvention so that we can live better lives I think is the thing that matters I love that for me it's really about intergenerational networking and community building. One of the 
things that I found really difficult in my journey as a, as a young female founder is the expectation to automatically know everything because I am the leader of a company. You know, forgetting that I'm 25 years old or that I've never managed a P&L or I've, you know, never done these things before. But there are incredible executives and other women founders like Debbie who would be, you know, have done it before, been there, done that. And the networks of, of that just aren't, well, I've not found that they've been there. I'm really lucky now that I am collecting some incredible women who are between the ages of 50 and 75. And, and I think there's a lot to be said about young women, not necessarily formally mentored, because there's been a lot said about that, but just building friends and relationships and connections with women who are older, because breaking that intergenerational bond is one of the ways that I find that the system divides and conquers us as women. It keeps us, it keeps us down when you don't know how to read a contract and you can't just go to a you know an older woman or, or you know a family friend to ask you what does this mean and what does that mean so what i would love to see in the future is far more friendship and intergenerational connections between women with at least a 10 to 20 year age gap to pass on that advice we don't have to do these things for the first time over because people have done them before Debbie Sharmadeen, thank you so much for your time here today. Thank you for coming on the Future First podcast. And if any of the issues we've discussed in today's episode piques your interest, please visit y-tree.com to find out more about Ytree and the work we're doing to provide a different perspective on money and life. And of course, follow the podcast wherever you like to listen so that you never miss an episode.